blockbuster bank earnings, the week that belonged to the Tata Group and an airline for those who invest for the long haul. This is Vinay Uttam, your resident stock doctor and welcome to a brand new episode of The Stock Doctor. Lots to discuss, lots happening guys, lots to lots lot of, lot lot of things happen in the week in, in you know in the week gone by in the markets. Lots to discuss, so let's just jump straight into our first segment, Doctor's Weekly Snapshot. It's earnings season and the bulls love it. The Dow was up 1.6% for the week. The S&P 500 was up 2.2%. And the tech-heavy Nasdaq was up 1.7%. Thursday and Fridays were, were, were great days for the markets. Uh, the market was up on both those days by staggering amounts. It was a good good week overall. And uh, as seen by the percentages, a big, big jump indeed. So who were this week's newsmakers? Well, the big banks, of course. The earnings from the big banks were out. And they were good. Really good. Some of them were even great. So let's look at some numbers. I'm about to throw some numbers at you. But obviously, as, as usual, I will dissect those numbers at the end of the, uh, and, uh, you know, towards the end of the segment. So let's start with the big brother, JP Morgan. Smashed earnings estimates thanks to its better than expected loan losses. Earnings came in at $374 versus the $3 estimates as the bank released $2.1 billion in reserves and only had $524 million of net charge-offs. The company also had a lovely quarter in terms of the investment banking fees as it registered a 50% increase to a record $3.28 billion. Up next was Bank of America, which reported a total revenue of $22.8 billion, which was an increase of 12% year-on-year. Their investment banking division had a great quarter as well, something we don't relate as much as to a BOA. We relate investment banking normally to JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, not exactly Bank of America, but they, they had a stellar quarter. Uh, the investment banking division registered uh, a near record fees of $2.2 billion and a 12% year-on-year increase in their sales and trading revenue. Coming to the big boy of trading and sales, Morgan Stanley comfortably comfortably beats uh, you know beat street estimates as it recorded a total revenue of fourteen point seven five billion dollars and also earned itself an EPS of a dollar ninety eight. Trading revenue. Now this is something we can relate to Morgan Stanley and you know which has been one of the bank's biggest strengths. Also smashed estimates. More specifically, if you were to split it with equity trading and fixed income, the equity trading revenue jumped 24% to $2.88 billion. A comfortable beat by half a billion dollars. Would not expect anything else. Fixed income revenue, though, did experience a drop. Even though it experienced a drop, it still beat the street estimates. The estimates was a $1.53 billion, and uh, Morgan Stanley uh, recorded $1.64 billion for his fixed income trading revenue. It's investment banking franchise, yet another sector which we, you know, another strength of it, the bank, and one one area where we relate, we can relate to the bank, smashed the estimates by more than $600 million, registering a 67% increase uh, to a record $2.85 billion. Good day for Morgan Stanley, good week for Morgan Stanley, good week for the three banks so far. Three down, three to go. Citigroup also had a great quarter as the bank beat street estimates. It's a trend, isn't it? What can I say? If there is a great quarter, it's a great quarter. I know I'm, I, you probably would be like, he's saying great too many times. What can I say? It's, it's you know, it, it, it truly is a great quarter for all the banks. Citigroup also had a great quarter as the bank beat street estimates, both in terms of adjusted EPS and revenues. Adjusted EPS came in at about $2.15 a share, beating the street estimate of $1.71 a share. And it recorded revenues of about $17.2 billion which topped the street estimates of $16.9 billion. 
Another great quarter for the bank in terms of trading revenue. Oof, this is becoming a trend, which was the main driver behind the profits. Fixed income trading revenue came in at about $3.18 billion, topping estimates of $3.07 billion. Uh, and the equity markets trading revenue came in at about $1.23 billion, comfortably topping estimates of $909.7 million. It was a good quarter for their investment banking uh, team as well. Surprise, surprise, with revenues increasing by about 40%. Wells Fargo, their profit jumped approximately 60% in the quarter as adjusted EPS came in at $1.22, topping the street estimates of 99 cents. And uh, the bank, uh, you know, the main driver of this profit was that the bank released $1.65 billion of its loan loss reserves which made up for more than, uh, you know, which more than offset a drop in its net interest income. So while the net interest income was down, the bank still had a lot of loan reserves, uh, which it released, thereby, uh, you know, contributing it to uh, profits. Revenue also for Wells Fargo topped estimates, coming in at, at $18.83 billion, when the consensus was $18.35 billion. Finally, my favorite, doctor's favorite, Goldman Sachs knocked the analyst estimates out of the ballpark. What a quarter for GS. As earnings came in at about $14.93 a share, keep that number in mind, $14.93 a share, $14.93. And guess what the street estimates were? $10.18 a share. What a smash. Revenue, meanwhile, came in at about $13.61 billion versus consensus estimates of about $11.68 billion. Goldman, the franchise known for its investment bank, the, the icon of investment banking, the league leader in investment banking. Any surprises uh, regarding investment banking revenue? None whatsoever. The only thing was it recorded a whopping 88% increase in IB revenues at $3.7 billion dollars crushing, and I repeat, crushing estimates by approximately $750 million. Advisory revenue re related to mergers and acquisitions, they hit a record high, and Goldman's, and even Goldman's lesser known entity, the Consumer and Wealth Management Division, even that division saw a revenue increase by 35% to $2.02 billion, exceeding the $1.79 $1 billion estimate. What a quarter. What a quarter for Goldman Sachs. What a quarter for all the big banks. Phew, that was a lot of numbers, wasn't it? That's too many numbers. What can I do? Six banks repeated, uh, you know, record, reported their revenues, all doing very well. A lot of numbers to share. It's earning season, guy. look, for, look guys. Looking forward, you know, in the future episodes, expect not, not this, not numbers to this extent, but numbers nevertheless. But what a, what a quarter for the banks. And, uh, you know, obviously... I am less interested in simply reading those numbers out for you because that would just mean that, you know, you've watched about nine minutes of this podcast just looking at numbers, which you could have basically taken off any top financial newspaper out there and you would have actually seen it with your own eyes. So what's the point of me recording if I'm simply going to read the numbers? No, no, no. I am more interested in understanding what the numbers mean. So let's take a look at that. For starters, these numbers were great. Make no mention about it. Make no mistake about it. These numbers were absolutely great. But what it does mean is that the economy is finally, finally rebounding. And then the rebound of this economy is well and truly on as the Delta variant subsides and more people get vaccinated. So that's a great that that's the one takeaway from from all these numbers that I just threw at you. Next, 
The second, second takeaway from this is that there are some banks who are truly growing their business, and Goldman Sachs is a great example of this, whereas others continue to rely on a release of loan reserves for their growth. Wells Fargo is an example of this. In other words, there are some banks who are absolutely crushing estimates for the right reasons. That is, they are the trading revenue, IB fees, uh, you know, overall revenue, everything, everything is going up because the company, the bank itself is growing. And there are others, there are a few others which you know, while they post great numbers, the main driver of these profits and revenues is the fact that they have re their release of loan reserves. Now, loan, remember, in the early days of the pandemic, banks, you know, accommodated a lot of loan reserves, for, you know, for potential defaults. They expected a lot of defaults. It hasn't quite materialized since like that. And therefore, you will see a lot of these loan reserves being released and th which thereby inflates profits. The problem is you cannot, uh, you know, you can this, 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 uh, the, uh, you know, the, this, uh, a particular element of uh, basically increasing, you know, boost, releasing loan reserves to boost profits might not be, you know, might not work for the long run, right? So you've got to keep an eye out for those banks, especially Wells Fargo, that actually re reported, uh, you know, profits and the driver of profits being release of loan reserves. So the second takeaway is some banks are growing. Others continue to rely on loan reserves. Nothing wrong with their numbers. It's just that I would be a little bit watchful to see if they're if they're relying on the loan reserves too much for their profits and whether they're genuinely growing. Finally, one major takeaway. You heard me mention the words sales and trading and investment banking multiple times. The party at the IB divisions in general and mergers and acquisitions, the deal advisory in particular, is still raging. This is a phenomenal news piece of news for Goldman and Morgan Stanley, whose IB franchises are the best amongst the pack and they're one of the leaders amongst the pack. While I do predict a decline in sales and trading revenue going forward, simply because more people are heading back to work. And while we might never witness the kind of trading witnessed during the initial days of the pandemic, remember remember when the market crashed in March, everybody was like, the world is coming to an end, the world is coming to an end, markets are going to crash. You know, remember that? You don't know when it will recover. Yeah, it took only about a month for it to come back. And boy, what a run we had after that. So, and all because of individual traders. I don't see that kind of scale happening again. So that might, you know, sales and trading revenue might never be the same. Um, you know, so I do anticipate a decline, I, but the decline is not going to be substantial. The decline of the sales and trading revenue is not going to be substantial. And as a result, the banks, you know, they're, they're pretty okay. And why do I think that uh, the decline won't be substantial? It is because of two factors. Number one, the rise of individual investors, uh, a rise of retail trading. Number two, Equity markets continue to be volatile. They continue to be volatile and they continue ex expected to be continuing to, uh, to be volatile towards the end of the year. So, you know, both these factors, the sales and trading revenue is most certainly not going to decline, uh, not decline substantially because of this. And, uh, you know, as long as these two factors are at play, uh, you will have the bankers laughing all the way to, well, their respective banks. So, you know, sales and trading revenue, while you might see decline, not that big of a decline is what I would uh, expect going forward. Now, let's take a look at the M&A factor, uh, you know, M which also had a stellar uh, quarter and it's been, it's been growing very well uh, this year, record $4.4 trillion worth of deals so far. Now, as long as there are low interest rates, expect more deals to follow, expect M&A party to not, never stop uh, anytime soon. And obviously, you know, and that is not to say that it was going to be a forever gravy train. That is not what I'm trying to say. But the party has to stop it sometime. I acknowledge that. And, you know, probably the first signs of a slowdown in m and would be when the Fed finally decides to 
increase the rates because they're increasing rates, increasing cost of borrowing. You might you might see a slight decline in uh, you know slight decline in M and A deal making. This could happen sometime next year, but given the continued mixed messages coming from the Federal Reserve and from other experts, your guess is as good as mine. I would think it's next year sometime, but you know I'm 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 not going to write it on a you know on, you know I'm not going to bet on it. Um, let's say interest rates do increase. So what? The first few increases would not deter dealmakers. It's not going to be a massive increase. And furthermore, you are you know you got to also account for the fact that private equity companies these days are flush with cash. And, you know, and the second uh, thing that you need to keep in account are activist hedge funds, my research area, the area that I research, they're always on the lookout for the next company, the next target that is too weak to be a standalone entity and might be best pers pursued, or, you know, best uh, uh, be done with 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 a sale or a, with a with a merger. So you know, as long as private equity companies are flush with cash, interest rates are low, activist hedge funds still exist. I just don't see the mergers and acquisition parties stopping anytime soon. It's been a record year for M and A, and while you know there might be some obvious slowdown because the growth has been staggering, uh, this is one area that is far from slowing down. And you know, as they say, more deals, more profits, more money. So a M&A deal, that's, that's, that takeaway is exactly, you know, M&A is not going anytime soon. And because M&A is not going, any, going away anytime soon, this is exactly why I like Goldman Sachs. They continue to dominate the M&A markets and they are the leading leaders in the M&A &A market, the league tables. They are the leaders of the league tables. And, they're, and, and it's clearly evidence as well as evidence from their crushing, crushing third quarter results. Goldman stock, while it is up by almost 54% year to date, its price to book ratio is about 1.34, far lower than Morgan Stanley's 1.75 and JP Morgan's 1.7, and even lower than Bank of America's, which is at about 1.4. I also like uh, Morgan Stanley, but like I said, it looks the most expensive of all the banks on a price-to-book comparison. But Goldman just continues, to, this company just continues to rule the pack to such a degree that there was even an article on Bloomberg that was titled, maybe Goldman Sachs should take the rest of the year off. On that note, let's head to the next segment, Dr. Goes Home. Welcome to the second segment, The Doctor Goes Home. And what a fortnight it has been for India's oldest and largest conglomerate, the Tata Group. First, it goes and buys India's national air carrier, Air India. Talk about it probably in a later piece, but it happened two weeks ago. Last week, its subsidiary and my favorite, Tata Motors, gets a billion-dollar investment from private equity TPG's subsidiary, the TPG Rice Climate, and ADQ investors for its electric vehicle business. Number three, the Tata Group's power subsidiary, Tata Power, it receives multiple high-volume solar orders, forms a partnership with TVS Motors, and according to Economic Times, it's currently in talks with large sovereign pension fund managers to raise at least half a billion dollars ahead of its renewable energy units, IPO. There was some negative news as well for the conglomerate. The only negative news was the earnings of its IT subsidiary, Tata Consultancy Services, or TCS, whose Q2 revenues and earnings both missed analyst estimates and the contract value of its deals declined significantly. Furthermore, to make matters worse, TCS management warned that the attrition levels are expected to continue for the next two, three years. Now, the drying up of the IT mega deals is particularly concerning, uh, uh, given the fact they have been the major growth drivers, but I don't think long term this should be a major issue, as uh, you know, global IT spending should return to normal levels. Now that the world is emerging from the pandemic-driven recession, everybody's going back to work, you know, IT spending should should continue. 
um, in the long term at least. I see, I don't own TCS. My family doesn't own it. I don't track it as, as closely as I do with the rest of the some of the other subsidiaries of Tata, Tata Group. But any fundamentally, I do believe it's fundamentally strong. And any fundamentally strong company that loses 7% on earnings news, quite an overreaction, is something that I would recommend investors take a closer look at. Now, let's talk about some positives. That's something positives, and that's surrounding Tata Motors and Tata Power. Now, I'm pretty sure that you guys might be sick of hearing me vouch for Tata Motors or Tamo, but how can I not speak about it when the company and its stock continues to scale new highs every week and just continues to dazzle me? The company's EV subsidiary reminds me of the Reliance Geo platforms, remember? Remember when during the pandemic, it attracted multi-billion dollar investments from the likes of Facebook, Google, Silver Lake, and so on. Remember those days? Everybody thought that was, you know, that was that, that gravy train was ending. It never ended for a while, did it? Now, with a billion dollar, as far as TAMO is considered, TAMO's EV subsidiary is considered, uh, uh, concerned, with a billion dollar already locked in from TPG, Rice Climate, and ADQ, I wouldn't be surprised if more fundraising is in the pipeline for this particular subsidiary. I mean, I've said this time and time again, this is the company that is currently India's largest EV player, is churning out newer and better models faster than before, and has the advantage of having a luxury brand such as JLR, which itself is ambitious in its you know, EV goals. And I cannot stress this enough. You know, I just cannot stress this enough. Tamo has a ready-made ecosystem for EVs thanks to its cousins, Tata Power and Tata Chemicals, who can provide the EV subsidiary with charging capabilities and the lithium-ion cell manufacturing capabilities, respectively. Tata Power does the charging and uh, Tata Chemicals deals with the lithium-ion. Add to it Tata Autocomp, which is responsible for battery manufacturing and the finance arm of TAMO, which provides financing options for EV adoption. And you have an ecosystem that is unparalleled and one that even makes Apple's fortress of an ecosystem stand up and take note. So if you were wondering why TPG and ADQ were suddenly interested and why the stock is up 171% year to date, it rose more than 20% in a single day last week, you now know why. Having said that, you know, don't be surprised, you know, if, if the stock experiences a pullback in near term, it's gone up way too fast. And I, you know, it even had a correction, a little bit of drop in Friday. Uh, but every pullback, I'm telling you, is a blessing for long term investors. On Thursday, last Thursday, the company announced that its latest model, Tata Punch SUV, received a five star rating for adult occupant protection. As far as the doctor is concerned, I think the Tamo stock deserves a five star rating for long term investing as well. As far now, now that we we have covered on, on uh, Tamo, let's switch on to Tata ta Power now. No pun intended there. Like I said before, the company is very busy with its efforts to list its uh, renewable energy entity and is currently in talks with global asset managers to raise at least a half a billion. Now, look, I'm really excited about the, the thing that really gets me excited about Tata Power is its partnership with TVS Motor, Motors, uh, especially since TVS Motors is making all the right moves when it comes to pursuing its EV ambitions. Uh, it's targeting a revenue of between 100 and $150 million over the next five years. And more importantly, as far as Tata Power is concerned, TVS also has a partnership with BMW, who is also ambitious when it comes to its EV goals for both four and two wheelers. The company recently launched some of its e-bike models, and the reviews are great. Top Gear even went ahead and called BMW's CEO2 model the proof that EVs are the future, such as the raving review. Look, all this greatly benefits Tata Power in the long run because a partnership with TVS opens up a potential partnership with BMW. 
that is something that should keep investors excited. I'm not saying any partnership will be will happen, but it most certainly, you know, it's it's a potential possibility. Stranger things have happened before. So, you know, but it should keep, that should keep investors excited. You know, add to this the government incentives, and it's actually about time that investors start viewing Tata Power. Uh, you know, they stop to view Tata Power, the company, uh, you know, as, as something as a conventional power company. It's about time that, you know, they look at recognize Tata Power as something more than that. Look, I'm very excited about this, uh, about the about the future of the company, and the stock is already up 195% year to day. What a what a rolling roll! What a what a what a roll Tata Group companies are on, isn't it? Our stock is up 195% up to date. But I'm more excited as far as Tata Power is concerned. I'm more excited for the IPO of its renewable energy entity. Might even be a buyer if it goes uh, goes public. So while I'm firmly in Tamo, I'll adopt a wait and watch with Tapo as of now. Uh, because overall, you know, because I, I would rather invest in the renewable energy entity over, uh, you know, once it, the IPO does happen. Look, overall, though, brand Tata certainly has got everyone talking, at least in the last fortnight. All those doubters who wrote off this conglomerate in the past might want to have a rethink again. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the final segment, Dr. Dissect. Welcome to the final segment, the Dr. Dissects. Look, as the holidays are fast approaching, yes, yes, I know there are still 68 days to Christmas, but time's flying and I'm eagerly waiting to look forward to going home, okay? And I was, as I was looking for flights to do, exa you know, to go home, back to India, I was looking also, you know, I was also looking for any airline company that was worth investing in. And I think I finally found one, so I thought might as well dissect it. This week, so I will be discussing Delta Airlines, ticker symbol DAL. The company recently announced its uh, Q3 earnings and the numbers were great. The company managed to post a first quarterly profits since the start of the pandemic with adjusted pre-tax income coming in at about $216 million to one six, and a pre-tax margin of nearly 3% on the back of strong consumer demand and growing improvement in business and international travel. Revenue came in at about $8.3 billion, an increase of 30% quarter, quarter over quarter. Uh, the company also reported that it delivered 116 brand perfect days in 2021, which was on par with pre-pandemic levels. Now, look, brand perfect days are simply those days when the airline doesn't experience a single cancellation across their mainline and regional operations. Now, it's not while it's not a major indicator, um, you know, it doesn't get investors excited that much. Uh, it does signal at least that airline operations inst are steadily returning to normal levels. And that's something to get excited about. The biggest positive development from the company's earnings call, for me at least, was the pickup in business travel, which has long been airlines' cash cow. The company is now seeing volumes reaching the highest level since the recovery began, and close to 50% of the business travel seems to be restored. While airline chiefs obviously have mixed views on how fast business travel can come back, some say 2023, some say end of 2022, um, and while I completely acknowledge that we might never see the kind of levels of business travel that we saw pre-COVID, why would we? The days of PJs and Zoom calls are in. Why? Why would we see the business uh, travels coming up to that level? But you know, as as but but having said that, any recovery is good, and if it's faster than expected, then it's very good. So you know, so it is. Uh, it uh, you know, the, the company did the, that. That was my biggest development for me. The business travel uptick was it was a huge thing that I noticed. Now, see, overall, the airline industry has caught my attention for a while now, simply because the world is waking from a long, long COVID-induced slumber. As the variant, now Delta Airlines like to, likes to call it the variant for obvious reasons, subsides, uh, you know, as the variant subsides and the businesses open up and people get vaccinated, there is a lot of pent-up demand for people to travel either for holidays or to see their loved ones. 
Furthermore, as mentioned earlier, the US government finally announced that from November 8th, international travelers will be allowed entry into the country as long as they're fully vaccinated. In more good news, according to IATA, the US airline industry is expected to be the only region in financially positive in 2022 with an expected profit of $9.9 billion. All of these are tailwinds for Delta, and some of the tailwinds are clearly being witnessed. For instance, the company in its earnings call did see a rise in European bookings for travel to the US, rise more than six times. So European point of sales booking, people from Europe booking for travel to the US, rise up more than six times that what they had been prior to the announcement by the Biden administration to lift all travel restrictions. Now, that's one area. So you've got all these tailwinds for the company. If you want to go company specific, you can also see from the earnings call, the company is taking substantial opportunistic measures to increase its efficiency. For instance, the company now expects the wide body fleet next gen aircraft to make up 25% of its fleet by next summer, thereby driving efficiency gains, premium product enhancements and expanded cargo capability. I like the word premium product enhancements, which means, if it simply means that premium economy seats are back and Delta confirmed this in the earnings call that they are bringing back the premium economy class and expects most, if not all, flights to Europe to have this feature. Premium economy seats can be 30% expensive, and while Delta uh, you know, only allows booking of the premium economy by spending miles as of now, the higher cost, together with increasing demand from Europe, bodes well for the company. Put two and two together, six times increase, you know, increasing rapidly, increasing demand in Europe. You've got all these premium economy uh, flights coming, you know, seats coming back. Good, good for the company. Good news. The fleet renewal is also resulting in fuel efficiency gains. Keep that in mind. Very valuable indeed. These gains in the fourth quarter is expected to be approximately 4% better than the 2019 December quarter. Let's talk valuation. I always talk valuation. My proprietary financial model using the most conservative estimates yields a target price for Delta at $54, putting all these uh, you know, key points uh, in, in, in consideration. This represents an approximate 32% upside to Friday's closing price. Now, are there risks? Of course there are. Uh, you know, no companies without risks and the doctor always looks at the risks. The company, uh, Delta Airlines actually faces two major ones. Number one, and this is the bigger, biggest one, the rising fuel costs. The company already expects to post a loss in the fourth quarter due to the rising air fuel costs. Uh, you know, you got to understand that a 0.05 movement in fuel translates to an approximate $40 million of expenses for the company. Now take this, the company now expects fuel costs to increase by $0.40 or 40 cents per gallon from the September quarter, which suggests significant pressure already, keeping doing the math. While this is a near-term headwind, the rate at which fuel prices are rising is concerning. And, you know, we never know when they will, when they peak or when they will stop. While, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, so th that's always the first concern. The second concern is the uncertainty surrounding the pace of business travel. Look, I'm, like I said, I'm under no illusion that things will be the same in post-COVID world. They shouldn't be. Things have improved. Virtual uh, meetings have, uh, you know, people have adjusted to virtual meetings. I don't see anything, you know, I don't see uh, uh, things being the same. That does not mean things can't improve. And, you know, some of the business travel is most certainly expected to come back in due course, uh, especially the ones in sales, you know, that's definitely expected to come back in due course. Problem is the uncertainty surrounding how fast the pace of the recovery is most certainly a risk. And this is one to consider uh, for the for long-term investing and one that investors should and must consider before, uh, you know, even deciding to invest in the stock. But, you know, overall, guys, to, to really wrap things up, Delta Airlines is a reopening play. Okay, economy is reopening. Airlines are bouncing back. 
it's just, you know, it's it's a clear reopening play for me. This is a company that is taking all the right measures to capitalize on the recovery that could really start to accelerate early next year. Airlines are bouncing back much faster than many expected. Some expected airline recovery to, you know, in 2023. That's not happened. It's definitely bouncing back much faster. Why? Because simply the world is bouncing back faster than many expected. Remember, the world was coming to an end March 2020. Now we have vaccines, you know, all of that happening. The world is rebounding stronger than ever before. While there are temporary headwinds in the form of rising fuel prices and while the airline has a large debt on its hands, not going to discount any of these, the continued performance quarter after quarter, the strategy to bring back premium economy seats and the overall positive long-term outlook of the airline industry makes it a good pick for long-term investors. Verdict, the doctor prescribes as I beat the table. That's all the time I have for you this uh, week, guys. If you have any stock specific, you know, specific stock for me to discuss, do tweet me at Uttam Vinay, U-T-H-A-M-V-I-N-A-Y, or email me at the podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Until then, stay safe and make some money. 